The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. And this morning we're going to be looking, uh, as Mark continues on, the temptation of Christ. If you remember last week, I had shared that as we venture into this study through the Gospel of Mark, that one of the things that we're going to find as we uh, see Mark record the things and that Jesus did and the things that he said, that the underlying um, drive in all of his gospel is that he calls us as professed Christ followers to be obedient in following him, laying down our very lives as followers of Christ and to be engaged in making other disciples as we go along in that. And so this morning we're going to look at the next thing that he begins to present to us after we saw last week uh, Jesus there at the, at the Jordan River baptized by John the Baptist, not because he needed to repent uh, and be baptized with the forgiveness of sins, but to identify with us in that. We'll share a story with you. Chuck Colson writes in his book, uh, Who Speaks for God? An account where he had been watching a 60 Minutes interview where Mike Wallace was interviewing a survivor of Auschwitz, which was the camp there, Nazi camp, where over one million uh, Jews in particular had been, uh, had been killed there in the Nazi camp. And he was interviewing a guy by the name of Denur, who had been a survivor of the terrible atrocities that happened there in Auschwitz. During the interview, he showed a film clip of the trial of the gentleman by uh, the name of Adolf Ekman, who had been uh, brought in, who had run the camp there at Auschwitz, had been responsible for all of these deaths. He was being on trial, and when Ekman walked into the courtroom and Denur, for the first time, he had laid eyes on him since all of the atrocities that had taken place there in Nuremberg. He stopped cold in his tracks when he saw this man. He began to weep uncontrollably and fainted in the presence of this man. Well, Colson goes on to write, and he asked this question of the incident that had taken place there in the courtroom, and he says, was Danur overcome by hatred? Was he overcome by fear? Was he overcome by horrid memories? Colson goes on to answer his own question when he says, no, it was none of these. Rather, as Danur explained to Wallace, all at once he realized Ekman was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. This Ekman was an ordinary man. I was not afraid of him, but I was afraid of myself, says Denur. He said, I saw that I too am capable of doing the very same thing. I am exactly like him, he stated. Wallace summed up Denur's terrible discovery by putting this quote to it and saying that Eichmann is in all of us. It's a horrifying statement. Colson goes on to say, but it indeed captures the central truth about man's nature. For as a result of the fall, sin is in each of us. Not just the susceptibility to sin, but sin 
itself. And you see, what struck Denur so pointedly that day is the thing that should strike all of us as well. That we too are Eichmann as well. You see, the fact is, because of our nature, our fallen nature to sin, that not only are we sinners, but we ourselves are sin itself. This fact is proven by the the very fact that we are all tempted to sin. You see, we are all in this room this morning thieves, although we may not be a thief. We all in this room this morning are murderers, although we may not murder. All of us in this room this morning are adulterers, although we may not commit adultery. And the reason for that is because all of us in our born nature are all in Adam. And sin has so infiltrated all of us while that we may not commit these atrocities and other more unseeming atrocities. The fact is, it is in every one of us and we are capable of doing the very same thing. Some may take exception to that definitive statement. And I would say to those that would take exception to that is that you have not fully come to recognize and realize the depth as it's taught in Scripture that you and I are seeped in sin in our very sin nature. While we may not commit some of these atrocities or these Uh, unspeakable sins it is in us and we have the capability to it and the very reason that we are tempted to it shows that we are in that condition apart from Christ so I would ask the question well then what's the hope well the hope is is that Jesus too was tempted in every manner we are yet was without sin and he took the wrath of God that we deserved on the cross as a payment for us so that as we trust him we are now no longer in the second Adam uh, in the first Adam but we are now in the second Adam as Paul describes we are in Christ Jesus and that's our hope give us amen to that And so we look at this account in Mark's Gospel and in Matthew's Gospel, but I would remind us what James wrote in chapter 1 of his letter. He said this, he said, Let no one say when he is tempted that I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. The writer of Hebrews tells us this in chapter 4, verse 15. He says, For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Isn't it good to know That we have a God that we serve, a God that we worship, who loved us so much that He would become flesh, human, fully human, walk and live a life as you and I have lived, and faces temptation in the very same manners that you and I face temptation, yet He has overcome so that you and I might overcome as we've trusted Him in Christ. 
And so this morning we want to look at the key that Mark writes about, and particularly we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew, though, where he restates the account. But Mark writes, beginning in the 14th verse, he says, now after, excuse me, the 12th verse, the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. After Jesus had been baptized there by John the Baptist, it was the Spirit of God who immediately drove, uh, moved Jesus into the wilderness for one and one reason only. And that was so that He might be tempted by the devil. And so the Spirit drove Him into the wilderness, and He was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan... And he was with the wild animals, and angels were ministering to him. Now, it's kind of interesting that this is the only information that Mark gives us about the account. Matthew and Luke fill in the specifics of what took place there. And so what I'd like us to do is look at what Matthew recorded in his letter in the fourth chapter to see the details and how it relates to us in our lives. Because in the same way that Jesus was tempted by the enemy, you and I on a daily basis are tempted by Him as well. And then we're going to look how Jesus overcame these temptations. So turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, the fourth chapter, and begin reading me with me as we read along in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Is there anybody in the room that's fasted for 40 days and 40 nights? I do well to get one day out of the way. I have a couple of times in my life fasted for seven days, and I can tell you that even in seven days, it's something. But to fast for 40 days, and the thing that I find is remarkable about this, knowing the experiences that that I've faced after I fasted just one day, let alone seven days, that after seven days, man, I am hungry, I'm fatigued, I'm irritable. Sandy would say you're irritable even if you just fast through a lunch, J-Mo. But... It's interesting to see that it was after the time, as Matthew records, in that the enemy came in to tempt Jesus. And the note that you and I get from that is that the enemy knows the exact time to come into your life and in my life to tempt us to do something other than what the Father would have us do. And Satan does not change his tactics, right? The Bible says, be aware of the wiles or the schemes of the enemy. And he's been at this a lot longer than you and I have, but we can't identify his tactics. And then in verse 3 he says, After the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now the temptation that Jesus was facing here was very real. It's not just a little story that's made up, but Jesus had a real temptation to succumb to the opportunity that the enemy placed before him. As I'd stated earlier, after 40 days, which it's, it's proven by science that 40 days is about the minimum threshold to where death is almost intimate if you go too much longer than 40 days without food. And so it was at that very precise time that the enemy came in and he tempted Jesus. Jesus was weak. 
Uh, Jesus was fatigued. Although Jesus was being ministered to by the angels, He felt the same human things that you and I would have felt in this situation. And the enemy comes in and he says, If you are the Son of God, then turn these stones into bread. You see, the temptation that Jesus was faced with here was not necessarily just eating some bread that had turned to stone. But the temptation that he was faced with is the same temptation that you and I are faced with on a very regular basis. And that is Jesus being led by the Spirit of God, knowing that it was his Father's will for him to fulfill all that the Father had willed for him in his life. The temptation that Jesus faced was to take matters into his own hands rather than following the will of God. And you see, aren't we faced with the same thing as well. We live in a culture that says you deserve it and you you need to have it now. It doesn't really matter what the Father's will is. Whatever you need to satisfy that little flesh hunger you got, find another way, circumvent the will of God, and go and get it, right? And so he tempts him with this by saying, if you really are the Son of God then turn these stones into bread so that you might have your own desires fulfilled rather than the desire and will of your heavenly Father. We face it every day. Am I the only one that faces it every day? No. And so the enemy tempts him in this way. Somebody stated that the enemy's devices in Jesus' life during the wilderness experience was not necessarily to get Jesus to sin, although he wanted to have Jesus sin. What he really wanted to do was keep Jesus from going to the cross. And you see, what the enemy wants to do in our lives every day is to keep us from going to the cross and living that crucified life submitting our will to the Father's will and saying, Lord, it's not about me, but it's about you. And the enemy will do everything he can in his power to try to keep us from fulfilling the will of God. Notice the second thing he says in this. The first statement that he says is, if you are the Son of God. It reminds me of Satan in the garden with Adam and Eve. Did the Father really say? Wanting to cause Jesus to question His unique relationship with the Father. That He indeed was the Son of God. And He puts a question out there, If you are the Son of God, and I find the enemy does the same thing in my life and in your life, in causing me to want to question my relationship with our Heavenly Father. You see, it usually comes in my life after I've had some failure. Where I I know I didn't live up to the expectation what would be the will of the Father. And I fall short in an area and the tempter is always there to say, Are you really what you profess to be? Well, if you were a Christian, then you wouldn't do that. If you were a Christian, you wouldn't say that. If you were walking in the Spirit, you wouldn't say that. And he's right! But it never changes who I am in Christ Jesus. You see, the beautiful thing about what's taking place in our life when we've come to know Christ is the Bible says that we are a new creation. 
Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And the relationship that we have the Father, with the Father is unchanging. We are His and we will always be His for all of eternity. Hallelujah to that. Amen? You see, so when the enemy comes and tries to tell you, you're, you're not what you think you are. You're not who you think you are in Christ. You turn around to Him and I'm not going to tell you what to say to Him. You just turn around to Him. You see, he tried to get Jesus to question if you really are the Son of God. And then Jesus responds to him in verse 4 by saying this, that man shall not live by bread alone. And can I paraphrase for just a moment what, I, what Jesus really was saying when he, when he quoted this back to him, that man shall not live by bread alone. If I summed it up, Jesus was saying, look, it's better to starve than to be fed apart from the will of the Father. It's better to have all types of uncomfort in my life than to deviate from what I know the will of the Father is. It's better to not gratify that desire that I have if I know that it's not in keeping with the Father's will. Because I know ultimately God loves me and the place, the best place for me and for you in our lives as believers is to be right in the center of God's will. The other thing he's saying is, look, as his son, I can't act independently of my father. I must live by my father's word. And you know what? It's the same in your life and in my life. We desire independence. But the very fact is, is we cannot live without being dependent on the Heavenly Father. I've heard people say and rebut to the Christian faith was that Christianity is for those who are weak. Uh, for those who need a crutch. For those who need something else. And I would say, you're absolutely right. We all need Him in our lives. And so... That's the first temptation that we see. You see, sometimes the enemy might whisper in our ear, listen, provide for your own needs. I know you've asked the Father for that. And that's something that you really desire. And for some reason, he, he doesn't love you or he wants to withhold from you. Go ahead and short circuit his will and go and get it on your own. Can I tell you how many mistakes I've made in the Christian life by circumventing the will of the Father in my life and going out and getting it on my own? Anybody else there with me? You know, it's those payments you make for 60 months. <laughs> A lot of amens on that one. I've known many throughout the years of, of rather than waiting on God who had a great desire to, to have a family and be married, and rather, rather, rather than waiting on God to bring along the right person as a believer, another believer in their lives have married outside of the faith and would live today to tell you, I'm living a miserable life because of that. You catch what I'm saying here? You can put whatever example there is to it. But the best place for you and I in our lives is right in the center, obedient to the Father's will. Look at the second temptation. It begins in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 4. And I call this the temptation of arrogance in position. 
Jesus knew that he was the Son of God, and there was a temptation there for him to have an arrogance, and the enemy knew that, and he throws this out at him, beginning in verse 5. He says, The devil took him up to a holy to the holy city, that is Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, whether or not he physically took him there or not, I'm not sure. We don't know. Mark doesn't tell us. But he said to him there, If you are the Son of God, then throw yourself down. Now, in actuality, in that place, had Jesus literally thrown himself down, ultimately, because it was such a long drop, he knew that he would have smattered on the ground. And then Satan does this. He says, Throw yourself down, for it is written... He will command His angels concerning you, and on their heads they will bear you up, lest your foot strike against the stone. Jesus said again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The temptation that was thrown out at Jesus here, again questioning if you are the Son of God, really was to prove that you're the Son of God. For in Psalm 91, and this is what the enemy was quoting, he says in Psalm 91, it says, listen, He will command His angels concerning you, but what the enemy did here in the life of Jesus is the same that he did to, the, to Adam and Eve in the garden, and he did not quote fully the Word of God. If you were to look at Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, he left out a statement here at the close of that, which says, to guard you in all your ways, which means in all of your righteous ways. That God will guard in all of your righteous ways. And so the enemy uses a tactic here that he still continues to use to lead us astray, if he can. And that is to misquote, take away from, add to popcorn scripture. And the way that we can guard against this is to know the Word of God. Can I say this to you? Coming here on Sunday morning, listening to a sermon, listening to podcasts every day of the week, I don't care what you're doing. There, there is no substitute in the life of the believer for individual personal study of the Word of God. And it's so vitally, vitally important to us. We, again, live in that culture that we would rather somebody else do the hard digging and just give us the chewed up regurgitation, and I want to live by that. Listen, if that's all we're going on in the life as a believer, we're not going to grow very much in the knowledge of the Word of God. God desires for you and I to know Him as He has revealed Himself through the Scripture so that when one comes along that sounds good, sounds entertaining, is very has a charisma in the pulpit, whatever it is, they don't, we don't just suck it in. Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 2, verse 15. He says this, Do your best to study the Word of God. To present yourself to God as one approved. Approved not in that, that he's looking, we're looking for His approval, but, but approved through our study. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of God. You see, one of the greatest things is I, as I look at our particular nation and culture, that if you look at through church history, 
one of the things that's taken place in our culture is that just as Paul had said, in the last days they'll seek out those who will say things to tickle their ears. And the Word of God has become more and more and more and more diluted in our culture. And listen, if we want to live the life that God has intended us to live and to be obedient to Him and subject to Him and His Word, we've got to know the Word of God. Can I move on from that point or do I need to say it more? Know the Word of God. You see, there are always those that are going to be there. They're going to take from the Word of God, dilute it, add extra biblical stuff to it because it sounds good. Listen, when you know the Word of God, you will be able to distinguish when it's error. And trust me, so many have been led away by hook, line, and sinker taking what someone else has said. This is what the Word of God says when it's not. So Jesus combated this temptation by the enemy where he said this, You shall not put the Lord God to, your, to the test. You see, the other thing that was taking place here was that not only was the enemy trying to deceive Jesus by misquoting Scripture, but he was trying to put him to the test, put, to have Jesus put God to the test by saying, listen, you can do whatever you want, and whatever you do, God's going to take care of you. And this is kind of the reverse of the other. It's where we can live the life as a Christian under the guise of grace, saying, you know what? I can put God to the test. And I know this activity or this thing that I want to involve myself in, I know that it's not really within the will of God, and we kind of shove that back there, but you know what? I'm covered by grace, and I can do whatever I want. Paul called that taking advantage of the grace of God. He was trying to tempt Jesus. And Jesus said, look, <laughs> if I can paraphrase, I said, look, you can tempt him if you want to, but I'm not going to put him to the test. The third temptation that Jesus was faced with here is found in verse 8 through verse 11. I call this the temptation of lust for power. Notice what the temptation was. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Satan did have limited sovereign power to fulfill what he was tempting Jesus with. Because remember when Adam and Eve had fallen in the garden, that the keys were given, they relinquished the rule and authority of the earth over to the enemy. And, and when he takes Jesus there, perhaps he showed him Rome in its day. Perhaps he showed him Turkey and all those surrounding areas and the great cities in the world and said, listen, if you'll just bow to me, I have the power that you can short circuit, you can, can make shorter what ultimately you know is going to be yours and that's all the kingdoms of the world where every knee will bow and every town confess and you'll literally rule in Jerusalem. If you just bow to me right now, 
I can go ahead and give it to you. Perhaps Jesus thought for a moment. He said, you know, boy, then, then there'll be no more weeping over Jerusalem. I won't have to endure the agony of the Via Dolorosa, the, ro- the way to the cross. I won't have to be spit upon. I won't have to have a crown of thorns placed on my head. I won't have to be beaten. I won't have to be ridiculed. I won't have to suffer death on an agonizing cross. And I can go ahead and get what I know is going to be mine. I won't have to suffer the wrath of a holy God on me because of the sins of the world which I have no responsibility for anyway if I just bow it's the same temptation that the enemy places in our life, right? just bow to another God just, just bow to anything else and you can go ahead and have it now you don't have to wait and so he's tempting Jesus to that power to have it now rather than later. Jesus responds by saying, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Reminded of what James writes in his letter, chapter 4, verse, the last half of verse 6 through the first half of verse 8. James writes and he says, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Now notice what he says. He said, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Notice the sequence here in James' writing. We are never commanded to resist the devil. We're always commanded to submit ourselves to God. You see, there's an order, there's a sequence there. Because submitting ourselves to the Father says, I recognize who God is. And I'm humbling myself, realizing who I am, and I'm submitting myself to the Father's will. And in that, then I can stand and resist the evil one. I'm reminded also of this temptation where Jesus was being tempted to go ahead and exalt Himself. The Bible says that when when we're faced with that, remember that, that we need to humble ourselves in the sight of God, and in due time, He will raise you up. Now, how does this apply in our lives, J.M.O.? Well, it applies in a lot of different places. Maybe you're tempted to sell your soul out to the company store. I'm the smartest in my company. I'm the sharpest. I deserve it. And, and, and yeah, maybe I can wait on God, but maybe He's not going to come through for me, and so I'm going to step on everybody that I can to get to the place that I know is rightfully mine. I know these are some ethical issues that I'm crossing the line, but, but it's okay because... The ends justifies the means, 
and I know God intends this for me for any uh, intends this for me anyway. You follow what I'm saying? You see, we're faced with these things every day. The bottom line is of this is this: that if God intends it for us, the best way to acquire it is by Him providing a way and giving it to us. It's no fun selling a soul out to the company store. You see, Satan will always give us opportunities to take shortcuts. Satan will always cause us to want to try to question the goodness of the Father. I notice in Luke's Gospel, in this account that Matthew records, Luke adds another thing to that last verse in verse 11 where it says in Matthew's gospel then the devil left him and behold angels came and they were ministering to him Luke says the devil left him until a more opportune time see the enemy's always looking for opportunities right a more opportune time and just a practical thing man when you find yourself in places of distress or stress or in places of abundance, be on guard because the enemy is going to seize that as an opportune time. I'm reminded of what the psalmist wrote when he said, God, I, I pray that you would give me just enough so that I don't steal. In other words, God, just meet my needs so that I don't steal, but God, don't give me so much that I forget who you are. Sometimes we have so much, we forget who He is. Jesus overcame the enemy, and thank God that He did. Now, the greater temptation was going to come later. The next opportunity was going to come when He was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, where it was about to take place, where He'd go to the cross, where the enemy tempted Him there. Jesus overcame sin and temptation, and you and I can as well through the same means that He applied in His own life. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we can ever achieve sinless perfection, but I am saying this, that God has made a way that when the tempter comes, as we know, he, when temptation comes, He will provide a way of escape. There are two key, two key things we find that Jesus relied on the same things that you and I have to rely on in our lives as well. Number one is the Word of God. I've said probably enough on that. But we can rely and wholeheartedly hold to the Word of God. The second thing is this, very key in our lives. And that is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit of God. You see, when we were born again whether we recognize it or not, we have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Literally indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. So that, as the Bible says, we can be led into all truth. We know that. We can be comforted by the Holy Spirit. He's called the Comforter. But the great thing as, as John writes in his first letter, that we've been powered by the Holy Spirit of God so that we might overcome and have power over the enemy and his temptations in our lives. 
Paul writes this in the book of Romans when he says, You, however, speaking of those who are believers, are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells to you. You see, the key is that we submit by being filled with the Spirit of God. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5 that we are to be filled, continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. David wrote in Psalm 119, God, I've stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.